Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for, for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Julie Owen. Dr. Owen is an Associate Professor of Leadership and Integrative Studies in the School of Integrative Studies at George Mason University, where she teaches courses on socially responsible leadership, civic engagement, and community-based research. Julie recently served as one of the keynote speakers at the 2016 Leadership Educators Institute. She's a scholar for the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and is co-editor of both editions of the Handbook for Student Leadership Development. She is active on several national research teams, including serving as the PI of the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership Institutional Survey and a research team member with the Leadership Identity Development Project. Dr. Owen completed her undergraduate work at the College of William & Mary and her master's from James Madison University. She also holds a certificate of nonprofit administration from Duke University and received her PhD in college student personnel at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Julie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and get started with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask you a big silly question and limit you to a 30-second response. Are you ready for some Rapid Fire? <laughs> yes, bring it on. All right, great. So you're a tenured faculty member at George Mason University, and shout out to Mason for being the first school featured twice on the podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you also hold two degrees from Virginia institutions. So was it hard to transition to the University of Maryland for your doctoral work? <laughs> Miles, you're obviously familiar with the whole D.C., Maryland, Virginia conundrum, where these function as kind of separate counties, even though we're only like 20 minutes apart. But yes, I completely lost my Virginia friends when I moved to Maryland for eight years. And then I, when I moved back to uh, Virginia, they were like, you're back. And I'm like, I was 20 minutes down the road, but people don't cross whatever that invisible line is, I guess. And I also had D.C. friends who, when I moved up to the Beltway, said, basically, you're dead to me. So um, you get the territoriality that happens between Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the first time I became aware of that was I was really confused uh, when I watched 30 Rock because Tina Fey, who went to the University of Virginia, uh, her character on 30 Rock allegedly went to the University of Maryland. And there's definitely some poking that's happening uh, in the direction <laughs> of the University of Maryland. And I was just trying to get a read on that because I, I didn't really grow up being aware of this sort of, uh, this sort of thing. So. That was my. That was before I moved to DC and was really aware of uh, aware of that uh, situation. I love it. I have to check those out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what is the worst TV show you've watched on PBS? Oh, poor Miles. Miles got to hear my rant about Mercy Street, uh, which is filmed here in Virginia in Old Town, Virginia, Old Town Alexandria, and I had such high hopes for it. You know, Ridley Scott as a director, and it stars that cute guy from How I Met Your Mother. Uh, Josh Radner, but it was almost unwatchable. You know, it's filled with sort of gone with the wind stereotypes. And actually, um, Miles, after we were talking about this the other day, I found a, a review from the New York Post where it said, uh -huh. Mercy Street is so banal, it makes called the midwife look like something by David Lynch. So I thought a little <laughs> public television humor uh, uh, fits the bill very well. Although it could get better. I think it's getting better in second season, but you never know. I, I was very believe. judgmental of Poldark. I don't know if you watch Poldark, but that was a guy uh, galloping on a horse up and down the cliffs of Cornwall without a shirt for the first season, but it did eventually <laughs> get really good. So, Those are some, I mean, some real PBS deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a real devotion to public television. That you, right. I mean, I had not heard of either of those shows, and I feel like <laughs> I watched I'm like pretty familiar with like independent with independent TV, but Mercy Street and what was it? Pole Dark. Pole Dark. Call the midwife. You probably don't want to. Someone out there who's listening knows these stories. So, 
No, I so I am familiar with Call the Midwife. I think I think that that is a I think that that's a a good show. Uh, we had to stop watching it in my house, as you might imagine, when my wife was pregnant. Um, oh right! Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. We had to stop watching it. We haven't circled back to it, but maybe maybe we will. But I think that that's a good show. But Mercy Street and Pole Dark. I think you could you could have made that Pole Dark one up, and I wouldn't even know. Like I, I would have no idea. I don't know that anyone listening would have any idea. Uh, well, actually, one of my friends gave me a big pole dark poster for Christmas. I'm not sure why, but it was, you know, him uh, galloping around, so I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. I think it belongs behind my office door, you know, it's kind of a behind the scenes. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking you should put it up subvertly in your office somewhere. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> All right, so I know you have been fortunate uh, enough to do a lot of traveling recently with your mom, so what's the best trip you all have gone on together? Oh, my mom is amazing. She's 70, but she's so young at heart, and she's way more fit than I am, so I can barely keep up with her on some of these trips. Um, she's off this week to go to Iceland um, to mm. climb with into ice caves to take pictures that were a borealis. Um, so she's, I'm not going on that trip. She's amazing. But um, last year we got the chance to go to Cuba, um, and it, we were there the week after the Rolling Stones played and the week before Obama came. So you could mm-hmm. just feel... Uh, the, 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 the excitement in the air, the energy, um, truly seeing a culture in transition. And then that trip, we got to really spend a lot of time. We stayed in Casa Particulares, which are family homes, um, mm-hmm. through much of the trip, and um, just talking to folks that people really wanted freedom and human rights, but not necessarily interested in emulating the capitalism. Everything goes with capitalism in the U.S. And so I think there's going to be some interesting conversations as people get less cautious about expressing um, what they really want for their own culture. So, but it's fascinating. Highly recommend. Mm. Okay, great. Where the, let me ask you this. This is my uh, very uninformed take on uh, Cuba travel. Um, I see people posing with a lot of old cars. Did you see a lot of old cars while you were in Cuba? It's a really yes. important, important. Yeah. Place. I thought that was like, you know, maybe only in Havana or certain places, but it truly was because of the um, import-export restrictions. They had to sort of keep fixing uh, the equipment they have. And so what's happened now is that the um, laws have lightened up a little bit so people can actually own those cars, and so people are try- starting to sell them now to people in Russia and the U.S. and China um, mm. and because they can make enough money off of selling their perfectly 1950s whatever um, so anyway, to like feed their family for a year. But um, the, it's amazing. The cars are beautiful, and there's very like, pride in them. And then they also learned that um, if you had a convertible, you'd get more tourists to give you rides. So a lot of folks cut the tops off their cars mm. to like make them convertible so they get more tourist dollars. So, But yeah, they were, it was unbelievably true. Mm. Interesting. Okay, uh, so my last rapid-fire question is uh, I obviously enjoyed and got a real kick out of your uh, your affection for PBS, but without question, my favorite thing <laughs> that I've learned about you is uh, is about your affinity for the uh, Dabbler Merit Badge while in Girl Scouts. So uh, can you tell me about the Dabbler Merit Badge and, and sort of convey how that's reflective of your personality? Yeah, this is, I should have known uh, back in the day. But so the girls, I don't even know if they still have, I lost touch with the Girl Scouts, but they used to have this merit badge called the Dabbler, where instead of doing like eight activities in any one category, you could do one from eight categories and get the badge. And I never got like a merit badge in archery or whatever it would be, um, but I got like seven of the Dabblers because <laughs> I was consistently unfocused. And now looking back, I think they should probably call it the dilettante. Um, but it definitely shaped sort of my approach to hobbies. And um, I have a, 
I'm interested in a lot of things, but I have a very short attention span. So I tend to be the queen of the advanced beginner um, when I take on activities or events. So um, someone teased me because I, I took golf 101 for like the seventh time. Um, I, I'm still taking the lessons, um, the beginner lessons, but um, in everything from like tennis and golf and pottery and photography and gardening, you know, breadth over depth is how I roll. So. <laughs> Well, you, you don't get bored that way, you know. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it also sometimes applies to my research agenda, but that's a whole other podcast. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> great. All right, so we're going to uh, shift to higher ed, two truths and a lie. So I'm going to provide Julie with two stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and Julie's going to have to parse out the lie. So we're going to do another state focus here. Uh, so Julie, I know that you used to work in North Carolina. So the theme for this one is North Carolina events. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, great. Our first, your first option is Duke University recently named the University of Pennsylvania Provost Vincent Price as its new president. Price has, has a distinguished academic career, but is most publicly known for wrapping his introduction of Hamilton creator Lynn manuel Miranda's commencement address in May 2016. Okay, oh, so I that's hope your that's first true. I hope that's true. I love that. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next one is that uh, I need you to just settle in for the sentence that I'm about to say because I'm very proud of it. The North Carolina Board of Law Examiners recently opted to bar the MacBook Touch Bar from the bar examination. The board noted the features can compromise examination integrity and security. So that's your next option, whether the uh, North Carolina Board of Law Examiners opted to bar the touch bar from the bar. And then the last option is in an effort to reduce food waste on campus, the University of Mount Olive recently announced a one-credit course on home food preservation. This is notable as the university is in the same small North Carolina town as the pickled food company Mount Olive. The company is providing the instructor, equipment, and hosting the course on-site at its processing facility. So your three options are Duke University president, uh, bar, bar, and bar, or uh, <laughs> home food preservation at the University of Mount Olive. Now, I have a good friend who used to be in charge of the Mount Olive Pickle Festival, so I know a lot about Mount Olive. So I don't know. If you came up with that, I would be very impressed at your creativity and depth of commitment to that small town. They also have pickle ice cream and pickle pizza. You should definitely check that out if you haven't been there. Um, mm. I'm going to go, I think the bar, I think you wrote that while you were in a bar, and that's what happened. So that's my oh. guess as well. <laughs> well, so uh, I'll, I'll start with the first true one. Um, the uh, Duke University president, uh, Vincent Price, I'm not sure if he started yet, but incoming president, he did uh, he did wrap his introduction to uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda's commencement address in May. So that awesome. one is correct. That I makes would, me very happy. <laughs> I'd recommend to Google. It's it's like it's like eighty percent impressive, twenty percent embarrassing is how it is. <laughs> the other true one is that the North Carolina Board of Law Examiners did opt to bar the touch bar from the bar. Uh. So that one is true. I didn't really think that that one was that fun. Like I had kind of skipped over it when I found it, and then I wrote that sentence, and I was like, oh, no, this is very good. The <laughs> one that I made up now, what I will say is that I'm, I did not do an a, a exhaustive look at the, course, uh, at the course listing at the University of Mount Olive, but as far as I know, they uh, do not have a one-credit course on home food preservation there. 
Excellent so. creative writing there, Miles. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, my uh, my mother's godmother lives in Mount Olive, so that is my uh, so that is my connection to the city there, and that's why I know a little bit about uh, a little bit about them and their their pick. I also do some home uh, food preserving of my own, so that's. Uh, what do you preserve? Oh, uh, all sorts of things. Um, you know, as uh, as Portlandia would be happy to tell you, you can pickle <laughs> lots of stuff. Um, <laughs> I mainly make uh, I mainly make pickles and dilly beans and carrots and uh, sometimes I make pickle watermelon rind for my grandmother because she really loves it. Awesome. So, so cool. Yeah. It's yeah, funny that yeah. you chose this because when I play Two Tooth and a Lie, like with my classes or our programs, the lie I use is that I was the pickle queen for Mount Olive because there was such a thing and that just cracked me up that you could be Miss Pickle or whatever. And every time oh, people think yeah. that has to be true. So I've actually exploited Mount Olive for my own Two Tooth and a Lie uh, when I play this game on campus. So now Unreal. I can't use it again probably if people listen to this. I'm done. Serendipity. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, so let's pivot away from home food preservation. Not that people aren't here for that, uh, and let's talk. Uh, let's do our switch our next segment, which is designed to help the listeners understand you as a person and a professional. It's called getting to know Julie. So, Julie, what experience led you into this wild world of student affairs? Hmm. We had to go back a long way to find that. I'm getting older here. But um, I think for many, like many, it was a different student affairs made for me during my undergraduate experience. Um, when I was at William Mary, they had an amazing sort of RA training program. Um, and I remember reading an article called, I Left My Husband for the Woman I Love. And it sort of rocked my world. I'd never heard um, that there were whole ways of living that I never explored. I'd never heard of lesbianism. This is before the Internet, you have to remember, where you couldn't just look stuff up and people didn't talk about stuff. If they didn't talk about it, you didn't know about it. So, um, I just remember being like, wow, there's whole other ways of being in the world. And um, I knew that this idea of college is a special time where people kind of reconsider their values and beliefs and how they see their world around them and said, gosh, if I could influence them to take values around justice and human rights, that's a career for me. So I think that's how I got into student affairs and what keeps me connected with it. Um, probably a better story is how I became a faculty member. I'm a very reluctant faculty member, but that's a different day as well. So. Mm. Okay, reluctant faculty member, Julia. <laughs> uh, all right, what is your favorite book about leadership? Well, and I think others have given you uh, flack about this, but it's like asking me to choose my favorite kind of chocolate, you know, basically mm. impossible. So I'm going to give you three real quick, if that's all right. So three? All right. I'm going to do a past, present, future, right? Like, um, you know, instigator, <laughs> inheritor, kind of. <laughs> so anyway, in the past, my favorite book was, um, I just remember when I, in 1996, when I got the Exploring Leadership version one, I was teaching in North Carolina, and it taught me everything about what leadership was and could be and sort of was really pivotal. It was my, um, I carried it with me everywhere and stalked Susan Cumavest until she took me on as a doctoral student. So that book was really important to me. The book I love the most right now probably is Preskill and Brookfield's Leadership as a Way of Learning. Um, which is one of the first books that really connects leadership and critical theory. Um, um, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I steal from it all the time. And then my future book is going to change our world is John Dugan's forthcoming book, which is Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Um, and he's taking what Preskill and Brookfield did at a whole next level about teaching threshold concepts of social justice and critical theory, and I think it's going to change how we do our work. So there's three answers to my favorite kinds of chocolate. How's that? Okay. <laughs> No, that was good. I you you went through those quickly. You know, it didn't feel it didn't feel like you uh, like really uh, drove through those. So that was good. You can 
you can Ebenezer Scrooge your uh, your way through this. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, and if you take classes, Susan, you learn that more is more. So you know, uh, believe in resource sharing is huge. Great, great. Well, and for those of you who are interested in John's forthcoming book, we're gonna we're gonna be doing uh, some pretty significant coverage of that book when it comes out here in a, in uh, I believe next week. Uh, but we'll be doing that uh, covering that book later in the spring. So we're excited about that. Awesome. All right. Uh, my final question in getting to know Julie, when leadership programs don't work, what do you think has most often gone wrong? I love this question, Miles. I thought, you know, we actually don't know why they don't work because we don't study. We only study best practices, right? We study mm. success stories or well-established programs. So I thought um, it's almost like what do we know about the non-involved student? Not much because we can't find them mm-hmm. in our surveys. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's more to that question. And what do you mean by don't work and don't work for whom? Um, I think there's a really good dissertation topic for, from someone there. But I do I visit a lot of campuses, and I do see some things that, especially emerging programs, tend to go wrong. And one of them is they don't they try to be everything to everyone, right? They um, don't sort of differentiate the kind of leadership they're trying to develop, um, which makes uh, things get too sporadic and thin. And they sometimes people have real territoriality, like I have to own leadership, which we, we really mm-hmm. should be modeling ourselves at a multicultural centers where. We want everybody to do our work instead of saying, that's only my business. Um, mm-hmm. um, so those are just a couple of things. And then the other thing is like doing things to students and not with them. Um, you know, we plan something and don't sort of include them in the delivery and the um, deliberation about what that is and what they need from it. So just a couple of ways people veer off the path. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. So we're going to transition to our last segment obviously our biggest one because it's called six big leadership questions. You know it's big because it has the word big in it. Uh, (laughs) All right, so Julie, in your keynote at LEI, you proposed a comparison between the feminist movement and leadership studies. So what led you to this thought? Well, I've been um, teaching women in leadership now for a couple of years. We really significantly retooled our course at Mason um, and was talking about third-wave feminism. And all of a sudden, I started to see these analogies to leadership, how you know, we have sort of a parochial past, but now valuing more diversity of views and trying to be more inclusive. I'm like, oh my God, this is what's happening specifically in leadership education. Um, and we know that third wave feminism sort of destabilized constructs from second wave feminism. And I think leadership is undergoing the same kind of critical questioning about who is left out of the way we view leadership um, and how we sort of better value multiple identities and perspectives in the work. So who does it serve the way we teach leadership now and who is sort of silenced or not at the table? Okay, great. Big leadership question number two. Um, How would you characterize the three waves of leadership scholarship? Well, so here, this is definitely like Julie's view of the world. So uh, if I ask you this question, you might have a whole separate answer. And especially if you ask people from uh, different disciplines, they would have different lenses. But again, thinking about collegiate collegiate leadership education, um, I think our first wave were our pioneers. And of course, it's Susan Kumavest and the Astons and Danny Roberts and Judy Rogers. Um, um, I'm leaving out lots of names. But these are the folks who... Um, out of the much broader field of college student affairs or ag education or IO psych or other disciplines really started to delineate a focus on leadership. Um, and they delineated the original models and philosophies. Um, and they kind of said, we have some foundational principles that you must address the whole student in what we do um, when we do this, that we need training, education, development. Um, so that first wave built the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs back when they had to actually mimeograph and mail 
resources. You know, if I wanted a program from DW, you'd have to cross the Beltway to bring it to me. Um, okay. They created the National Leadership Symposium, and then you started to see the focus of leadership in NASPA and ACPA and NACA and ACUI and develop the social change model and relationship leadership models are partnering with 4-H and anyway so the creators right so those are our honored four mothers and four fathers um, and then I think there's those of us I identify as secondly leadership educator um, who really learned from our predecessors um, but our focus was taking those existing models and scaffolding them with empirical evidence like we say this is how it is but is this what does research show and sort of putting evidence behind the models and then also spreading the good word of leadership education kind of far and wide um, sometimes I call myself Julie Appleseed because <laughs> you know you take things from one campus <laughs> to another. Um, part of consulting is doing that. Um, but that's the era, this is the era when leadership programs exploded from like 150 or so campuses to the thousands they are today. Um, an era of proliferation and lots of there's continuing schools still starting leadership programs and trying to think about that um, and really moving from emergent to institutionalized on our campuses. So that to me is second wave and we're I feel like we're just leaving that era, and we're now in what I'm starting to call a third wave of collegiate, collegiate leadership education. And this is the next generation. Um, this is you, Miles, and all uh, many of you those out there listening um, who have inherited a respect for what has come before, but they're also interested in interrogating some of the assumptions the approaches have taken over the years. So how does leadership intersect with critical theory, identity, power, system, learning theories, et cetera. So the third wave asks critical questions about how do our own identities, subjectivities, and assumptions within our dominant social, political, economic, cultural systems shape our approach to leadership, whose voices are marginalized. Um, and there are lots of people starting to do this work. Um, many of John's graduate students, but others are also engaging, you know, Sonia Spino and others. So, so excited for what's to come next. It's going to be an upheaval, I think. What do you think? Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, the word upheaval always makes me, you know, makes me nervous, you know, I'm, as, a, <laughs> as a risk adverse person, I'm like, oh, upheaval, what does that mean? Uh, no, but I mean, I, I think that that, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see how, interesting to see how this third wave plays itself out. Uh, yeah. All right, so I know you're currently engaged in research on the experience of first-generation students in leadership programs. So what can you share about your findings in that space? Well, this is a really uh, neat research project sponsored by um, the Bringing Theory to Practice grant through the Association of University, American Universities and Colleges and Universities, AACNU. Um, and so we're still gathering stories and also doing quantitative analysis um, on Mason's first gen, one third of our campus's first gen students. Um, but what we're learning, first of all, is there's huge different definitions of what counts as first gen. Um, everything from no parent graduated from a four-year college to no relative ever attended any college, and like how you define it really shapes the number of first-gen students you have. We've heard stories of, um, uh, in our campus, it's a U.S. college and university, so you could have two parents who got PhDs in Mexico, but then you're still considered first-gen in the U.S., and whether that's how it should be or whether some folks are actually gaming the system to take slots that maybe more underserved populations could access. Um, so that's been fascinating. And then with students themselves, they don't, they're like, I didn't know that I was that. <laughs> you know, you're calling me this, but what does that mean? And um, are we putting a label mm -hmm. on them? Um, but the research kind of shows that students, first-gen students who interact with peers, um, the more they interact with peers, especially in early years of college, um, develop higher moral development and character, intercultural effectiveness, psychological well-being. So basically our hypothesis is that the more they interact through leadership programs, civic engagement, 
service learning, um, and then also well-being programs, the students are approximating the social capital of non-first-gen peers. Um, so they're actually able to like equal out the balance out this stuff. So that's really fascinating. Has been really cool to sort of um, see the power of involvement on addressing some of what we often think of as a deficit model. Um, or also our quantitative data is showing that there are real assets. Our first generation students at Mason are 20% more likely to be involved. They value education much more and what it symbolizes. Um, so also trying to leverage those stories of sort of asset-based approaches to who the population is and what do they want from leadership, education, et cetera. So it's been really cool. And we have this rockin' research team that's undergrads, grad students, um, student affairs, deans, you know, so it's this really across-campus kind of group that's just keeps going. We're kind of our own learning community. So, mm. wow, I can't, I can't uh, wait to read more about that. And uh, and I would also, I, I have this vision now used in the term rock and research team of just <laughs> giving some, giving some motivational speeches. You know, using using the phrase rock and research. I really like that. I'll have to bring it back. That I also call the data sexy all the time when they make fun of me for that. So I'm like, this data is oh. so sexy. And they're like, uh, it creeps me out a little bit, Dr. J. So anyway. That is a funny word, just generally. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I use it too far too frequently in courses and classes. And, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So for our fourth big leadership question, how do you see the historic roots of leadership studies continuing to impact these programs on college campuses? Well, I see, and this is. Um, you know, the residual of leadership as this competitive individualistic excellence sort of thing. Um, this shift from when leadership used to be about selection, I guess it still is in many spaces and places, um, but how do we sort of pick those most worthy um, from among the pool? I even had our alumni director one time call me and ask me if I could design a, a survey that would select the best alums to be part of the leadership council. I'm like, oh, that's not how we do it. We do development, not selection with leadership. So I think that sort of historic thing is definitely still there. You know, Susan often talks about in the 70s, there was a very best-selling leadership book called Winning Through Intimidation. Um, so it makes you realize just in a few, one generation, like how far we've come um, from <laughs> winning through intimidation to sort of more inclusive and relational leadership. And that's what that first wave did for us. I think they really set up the field um, um, to really rethink what, what leadership as process and leadership as inclusive and ethical and all those things. Um, but we still see the residuals for sure. In the institutional survey that goes with the MSL, the multi-institutional survey of leadership, we also studied the campus inputs. And one of the questions is about partnerships, like which areas does your leadership office partner with and how frequently. And last on the list every year is disability services right? Mm. Um, so like, why do we have that? What is that about? Why don't leadership programs see um, those folks as important partners? And what more could we do if we made our stuff more accessible for people? And for a while there, people weren't partnering with multicultural centers either. And then given what we know about the impact of social cultural conversations on socially responsible leadership, that's a, a crime too, that those aren't our number one partners, or really that we're saying, what can we do to help you with your mission? Um, because um, sometimes that's where leadership is happening on campus. It's through the multicultural center. So anyway, I think we need to keep examining how we've always done things and, um, yeah, and, and to make sure they're more inclusive and reflective of what we say we do. Hmm. Do you yeah. see that on your campus? Do you see elements of that? Um, you know, I, I've thought a lot about that and whether, I, I, I mean, I, a big reason why I asked the question is I've just thought through the assumptions that, that we have with that word leadership that continue to that continue to exist and I 
you know, I just, I don't, I think that, uh, I, you know, as we uh, get further away from ideas of, uh, you know, as we are less understanding as just because of age as we're, you know, as I am getting further and further away from understanding exactly the lens by which our students are receiving information, um, I don't know. I, th I think that I think that the notion that I received as leader was very uh, was very historically rooted, and 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 I don't know. Um, I don't know totally how our students are receiving it. So that's why that's why I was curious. So it's interesting to interesting to hear. Um, and, there's a, and there's a little tension in the field. Like, do you have to un understand the historical in order to really effectively critique it? I'm mm. teaching research methods for social justice right now, and um, almost nobody in the class has actually been exposed to basic research methods. So I'm like, well, can I teach them the post-structural, <laughs> you know, can I teach them critical methods without having them first have to go through the understanding of objectivity to tell them why subjectivity matters, right? So I think it's the same thing with leadership. Do we need to teach the foundations in order to interrogate it? I don't know. I think we need to still play around with that a little bit. Hmm. Well, I also noticed you didn't mention in your in your three favorite books, Winning Through Intimidation. Was that just an oversight? Do you want to go back and... <laughs> yeah, I'd like to revise, please. Okay. Okay, great. great. I did have... I don't know if I told you this story. I did have a student give me... Um, I was teaching uh, the five exemplary practices, you know, and we're talking about encouraging the heart. And one of my students was like, this is BS. And she gave me her book. Her favorite book is The West Point Way of Leadership. And it says, the whole point of that is a good job is its own reward. You shouldn't have to encourage or coddle people. <laughs> so there are definitely different... Uh, books out there telling you how to do leadership in different ways. So, sure, sure. No, when I, I when I I think about that a lot, there's this great scene in Mad Men when, uh, when, uh, uh, well, if people haven't seen Mad Men, I guess this won't be interesting. But <laughs> when, I love uh, it. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> when Peggy goes to Donna is upset because he didn't say thank you, and he says the money is the thank you. Oh um, right, you know, yes. That's kind of an that's kind of an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. Yeah. Uh -huh. A different sort of take on on uh, supervision that we have here in student affairs, by and large. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anywho, okay. So for our fifth big leadership question, uh, let's circle back to your busy LEI. So I wanted to ask you more about another collaborative presentation that you did at that conference. So, what do we know about who is teaching leadership on college campuses? Well, there is an actually emerging body of scholarship about leadership educators, and this builds on the work of Dan Jenkins from the University of Maine, who to my knowledge is the largest survey of leadership educators across disciplines and professional associations and contexts. I think he has almost 800 people in his survey, but they're um, – some of them identify as leadership scholars, and some identify student affairs people. So it's a very mixed kind of uh, a data set. And then also the work of Corey C. Miller and Carrie Priest on leadership educator identity. So with Dan's survey in 2014, the numbers are not surprising. Um, leadership educators are overwhelmingly white. And I think you see that when you go to conferences, which again is a residual from the days of sort of positional and hierarchical leadership. Um, and we have a lot of work to do, third wave leadership, uh, to make sure that leadership educators reflect the students in the communities we serve. Um, fairly equal about gender, at least who responded to his survey, but if you're teaching leadership out of student affairs, you're far more likely to be a woman, and if you're teaching leadership out of faculty, you're far more likely to be a man. And so interesting about what about those fields foster those kinds of folks of, of interest. Um, and then probably the most surprising thing about who teaches leadership is that most of the folks who teach leadership have no formal background in leadership studies. So only mm -hmm. about 40% had any kind of coursework on leadership, and we know it's increasingly complex and quickly, rapidly changing sort of field from a theoretical perspective. Um, very few had anything on 
scholarship of teaching and learning or curriculum development or how to design pedagogy and engaging learning experiences. <laughs> um, so anyway, so where are people learning this stuff if they're not reporting having taken courses about this? So what are the consequences that we are mostly self-taught? Um, and I'm excited to see that changing. More student affairs grad prep programs are including leadership courses. Um, and there's more stuff like your podcasts and things that are doing online to keep people abreast of current information. So I have high hopes that's shifting. Um, it'll be interesting to see if we do that survey five years from now, what kind of things we get. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, this is, uh, this is good content, but I don't know that, uh, I don't know that two truths and a lie really really qualifies as formal training. I don't know. We would have to ask Dan Jenkins on a survey, you know, what, mm -hmm. what, what <laughs> Anywho. Okay, for our last big leadership question, so let's take the last, uh, uh, the next progression from the last question. What implications does uh, the research about who's teaching leadership have for the professional development of leadership educators? So much. You're actually predicting a piece we're working on right now. Um, you know, we have the leadership identity development model that really talks about students as they move through leadership. Um, and then Corey C. Miller and Carrie Priest have developed the leadership educator identity development model. And the piece that we're working on now of this is the leadership educator preparedness model um, that mm. Carrie Priest from K-State, the Staley School, is working on. And this idea that leadership educators need to have at least kind of three areas of development, and often we only have one or two. It's almost like the three-legged stool of tenure, um, but one of the one of the legs of the stool of leadership education preparedness is um, obviously leadership content. Do you know what of you speak? Are you um, comfortable sort of talking across disciplines and in integrative and interdisciplinary ways about leadership? Um, do you understand what the research shows that scholarly? Are you still teaching fish philosophy and calling it leadership, which a lot of people do? Uh, that's a different survey, but we do know that a lot of folks are doing Myers Briggs or Strengths or you know, mm. customer service and calling it a leadership program. So are you really teaching leadership content is one leg. The second leg is what do you actually know about teaching and learning? So are you familiar with assessment of learning, both formative and summative, like as it's happening at the end, pedagogical design, how to create inclusive classrooms or inclusive programs? Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff to know about that too. And then the final one that's my little – I don't know, bailiwick here is um, what do we, how do we work on our own personal, social, and professional identities? So um, I fully believe that who you are is how you educate. So um, what do we do? Um, what are we unconsciously inflicting on students based, just based on how we structure stuff, what content we choose to include or not include? Um, and so I like this idea of how do we help people get preparedness in each of those three areas, leadership content, teaching and learning, pedagogical knowledge, and the third about doing your own damn work, right? Um, how are we staying engaged with that ourselves? We tend to be so busy maybe with keeping up with the content that we don't immerse ourselves in our own sort of examination of privileges and biases, et cetera. So. I think mm -hmm. that's a cool thing coming out. Um, I think professional development for leadership educators um, will be shifting as well in the near future. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I was talking to, in relation to that, to that last piece, I was talking to John Dugan the other day about uh, what I mentioned earlier, preparing for, uh, preparing to put some, some uh, podcasts together to talk about his new book. And I, you know, I made the point uh, in sort of the course of our conversation that your own professional development is very, uh, very rarely the fire that you have to put out at work. And so it's easy to, it's easy to sort of let that stuff, let that stuff slide. Yeah, that's all Stephen Covey. Way back, speaking of uh, things people mm. used to count as leadership programs <laughs> um, mm. with the seven habits, but that whole important but not urgent 
Like that mm-hmm. was, I really took that from him around this idea that we spend so much time in the urgent quadrant, um, but there's a lot of there's things that are more important and not urgent, and they often get left by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Was it called on fire? B yeah. quadrant, I think is. Yeah, quadrant four. I can't remember which quadrant it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Julie Owen. If you had one bit of advice to give an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass, what would you pass along? Ooh, uh, that's a, a good uh, – let's end with a small question. Why don't you, Miles? Great. <laughs> no. um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like um, one thing I try to keep saying is that I remember being on the outside a little bit and thinking that leadership was very clicky and it was – people who looked a certain way and people who all seemed to know each other at things. And um, I would say um, there's enough room for everybody in leadership education and we need to be intentionally including more kinds of people of different approaches. And so um, I, I like to say that there, there's enough room at the table for anyone who's in, interested in leadership education and you don't have to be perfect, right? We've all learned so much along the way. You just need to be engaged in the journey. So I just like to formally invite, if people need a formal invitation, formally invite you to join us on the journey of leadership education um, and know that we all have sort of partial and complete knowledge. Um, and um, I think that's exciting. That's what makes it cool field. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that that's so true, and I think that's something we talked about in our preparation for this is that, uh, you know, nobody knows everything about leadership because leadership is, you know, like the most diffuse thing in the entire world. You know, you can know everything about student leadership, and then you could not know, have a complete blind spot about some interdisciplinary, you know, concept that is really interesting and engaging and could be applicable, you know. So I think that that's, I, I find, I, I find solace in the idea that, you know, it's, it's so big and so hard to get your arms around that uh, even, you know, I think everyone feels like they're, they have a blind spot or two within their, within their own understanding and knowledge. And then how do we not cover that? How are we authentic in that and share that with students? I mean, why would students risk vulnerability and reflection and challenge if we're unable to sort of model it ourselves, right? Mm. So being comfortable saying, I have no idea, let's look that up together, or let's call so-and-so and find out what they do, or um, sort of showing people how to be okay not knowing and, and then um, and still feeling valid, you know, still feeling validated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so you can connect with Julie on Twitter at Julie underscore GMU, and you can get more information about the Student Leadership Program's knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SA lead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Julie. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, everyone.